Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. You are listening to On the Environment, a podcast series from the Yale Center for Environmental Law and Policy. For more information, visit the website at envirocenter.yale.edu. Hi, you're listening to On the Environment, a podcast of the Yale Center for Environmental Law and Policy. I'm Aaron Rubin, and we're in the studio today with Angel Sue, Project Director for the Yale Environmental Performance Index and a China Environmental Policy Scholar. We're going to talk about China's environment, government, and citizen response. Angel, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Aaron. Um, one thing I wanted to start off with is China in the news and China's environment. So we've been hearing a lot that China is on the front line of environmental degradation in the world, or at least specifically degradation of the human environment from pollution. I'm thinking the smog in Beijing, um, the recent pig carcasses contaminating the Hunan River. Knowing that these news accounts may not paint the whole picture, can you fill us in on other trends in China that we may not know about, things those of us who haven't been there um, maybe haven't seen or heard of? Yeah, I think that's a really great place to start off this conversation. So obviously, there has been a lot of media attention recently with respect to the appalling conditions in, in, of China's environment. I think that one thing that people aren't aware of is that actually there's a quite a lot of action going on in terms of trying to improve the environmental situation, trying to reduce levels of air quality. And I think that those stories don't receive as much media attention quite frequently. So for example, I think the air quality case, I'm just going to start with that yeah, one because please. that's received a lot of attention. And I think that that's one issue that Chinese citizens are very actively engaged in. So for example, I think that the rising middle class and increasingly the average person in Chinese, so in, in Chinese we call this the, the law by xing, so the average Chinese citizen. And they, they're one of the reasons why the Chinese government has responded so quickly to try to address air pollution in China. So Chinese citizens are actively engaged on the internet and they use social media platforms like Sina Weibo to voice their displeasure and their concern over the lack of transparency and information with respect to air quality data in China. And so this really pushed and reached a tipping point, I would say, in October, November of 2011, when the pollution levels were very, very high. And Chinese- And this is in Beijing? Yes, this okay. is in Beijing, but also in, in other parts of China. But in particular, it kind of reached this tipping point in Beijing, where citizens were looking at the official Chinese statistics and saying, wait a second, the government is telling us that the air quality is is good and only moderately polluted, but then we're looking at this alternate monitor on top of the U.S. Embassy, and these readings are saying that the air quality is actually quite hazardous. Now, they're also looking out their windows, right, and yes. seeing the smog that we've seen in images and, and things like that. Yes. So there's this disconnect and this cognitive dissonance between what they're getting from the Chinese government and the data and also what they're seeing and experiencing on, a, on an everyday basis. And so one thing that I, I noticed when I was recently there in March is actually private companies and marketers taking advantage of the awareness that now this middle class and the average Chinese consumer has with respect to air quality. So oh, walking into uh, department stores and looking at electronic stores, you would see these air filters. So now you have this whole rise of, of air filters and air purifiers that are now on the Chinese market. And it's really quite interesting because then you can see each one of them advertising right up front 
this will reduce PM 2.5 levels in your home. And so PM 2.5 is fine particulate matter with a diameter of 2.5 microns or less. And so this is the really dangerous air pollution that can penetrate human lung and blood tissue and lead to cardiovascular disease, lung cancer. And so it's, it's quite dangerous. And so this is actually the, the particulate or the pollutant that's been at the center of Chinese controversy with, with respect to air quality. So what we're seeing, in other words, is, is individuals responding sort of through the private market to, yes. would you say, maybe a, a lack of government response? Um, I wouldn't say a, a lack of government response, but I would say more of a lag in government oh. response. And so the policies obviously are now playing catch up because the Chinese the Chinese economy has been developing for the last 30 years at breakneck speeds. And so now you really see, so this is a trend that I've noticed um, of late. And one thing that's actually quite interesting, um, so we went to Shenzhen, this golf course, which is called Mission Hills Shenzhen, and it's the world's largest golf course. And, what and was, that's outside Beijing? Um, it's actually in Guangdong province, and so it's in the Pearl River Delta region. Shenzhen obviously is, is kind of the, I guess, the sweatshop of the world, and that's where you have Apple, for example, and a lot of electronics companies that manufacture their goods in this, in this particular city. And it borders, um, it, it's, it's actually in between mainland China and Hong Kong. And so this golf course is the world's largest golf course, and it caters to this rising upper class and this, this elite class of wealthy Chinese. And so it's really a retreat from city life where Chinese, the wealthy Chinese go and they can have their second homes. But what was really quite interesting in driving around the golf course, they had these banners that were advertising things like a retreat away from the city, a five-class world star golf course. And then they would have another banner that says low PM 2.5 <laughs> levels and amazing air quality. And so that, wow. that's a, a new trend that I've noticed um, in particular of late. Do you think in the rural areas where the air maybe isn't as bad, mm. there's the same level of awareness of the quality problems and the health effects? Is this, is this an isolated to the city's issue? Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And I think that the levels of environmental awareness are much, much higher in the wealthier parts of China, in the cities. And actually, that's this is another trend that I think that is less discussed when we talk about China's environment, which is now with pace with the pace of development actually in, in the increasing levels of environmental awareness within the cities what's happening is that a lot of the pollution and the more pernicious unseen environmental harms are actually getting exported to the rural um, areas of china and to the countryside and so now a lot of chinese environmental experts are saying that cities are actually kind of past this threshold past hmm. this tipping point and now what we really need to be focusing our efforts are are um, in the rural areas where the environmental impacts and pollution levels are less well understood. Does that mean things are getting better in the cities as this pollution is, is sort of pushed to the margins, mm -hmm. or are we just seeing more pollution over more of the country? Right. I mean, I think that's part of the, the contradictions that China now finds themselves really enmeshed um, within. And so whereas awareness levels in cities are um, is, is quite high. At the same time, pollution levels are really, really poor. So um, it's, it's absolutely true that you have air quality that's, that's really quite poor in cities, but then um, citizens who live in the cities have access to better education, to higher income levels, to um, better amenities in terms of health. And, um, but then in the rural areas, in the poor areas, you may have better air quality, but then you don't have access to the same amenities. And so that's what's driving this huge push and this migration of citizens from rural parts of China into cities. And so um, that's why now China's urbanization rate is at 
and you know, if I if I understand correctly, a mm-hmm. lot of that migration is for jobs. Yes. What comes with that is then the benefits of the the urban system. We have more education, um, exactly. this growing awareness. So that brings me to one question that I've had as an outsider to mm-hmm. China and the way it's changing over the last few years. You mentioned earlier that there's been sort of a concerted response by right. citizens online to put pressure on the government to release new data to monitor the air better or at mm-hmm. least match what the U.S. government embassy is doing. Are you seeing a formal response, in other words, to environmental pollution, or um, is it just that people are buying air pollution um, filters for their homes? Uh, is Are there mechanisms for citizens to pressure the government? Well, I think there are these informal mechanisms that we discuss through social media, through the internet, and also there has been an increase in terms of citizen protest against the establishment of some really heavy polluting industrial plants that have developed, oh, cropped up all around China. So last summer when I was there, actually Ningbo, which is a city in, on coastal China in Zhejiang province, the citizens were protesting the, the creation or the establishment of a, of a chemical plant there, and the government actually stopped the wow. construction of this plants. But um, I think at the same time, it has been matched by strong government policies to address environmental pollution. So I think that actually China has some of the best environmental laws and policies on the books. And so, for example, in 2007, China released its first national climate change policy. And do we have anything comparable to that in the United States? No, we don't have any comprehensive climate change legislation. And so I think but the real challenge is in the implementation. Mm -hmm. And so it's not necessarily that the Chinese government doesn't care, that they're not aware that 30 years of rapid industrialization has now brought them to these very high and extreme levels of pollution. It's just that, again, there's this lag, right? I don't, so I don't what, think it so was anticipated. What, where is that lag coming in? I mean, are these mm-hmm. are these laws just paper? Um, mm-hmm. Is there a technical inability to implement them? What What's causing the lag? Is it yes. a non-desire or is it right. just very difficult in a country? changing it so quickly right. it's so large with so many diverse population centers i think it's all of the above so on the political side i think that there's a there needs to be or there, right now we're seeing a shift in terms of government priorities and political incentives being shifted from traditional prioritization of economic achievements to now these environmental um, goals or these environmental aims. So China follows this rule or I guess this style of policymaking in five-year chunks. So it's it's adopted from the Soviet style of mm-hmm. economic and social development planning. And so um, just 10 years ago, so just a decade ago, China was still prioritizing economic growth as one of these binding targets that local leaders had to achieve in these five-year periods. And they're rewarded for exactly. making, uh, achieving milestones in economic growth. Or right. maybe they're punished for not fulfilling those. Right, exactly. So they're rewarded with promotion when they achieve certain levels of economic development, job creation, for example, G- local GDP mm-hmm. generation. Um, but then starting with the 11th five-year plan, which was uh, between 2005 and 2010, that was the first time that environmental targets were introduced as binding or hard targets for local leaders. And then most recently in the 12th five-year plan, which is between 2010 and 2015, what the Chinese government also did is they um, made the um, economic targets aspirational 
or just saying oh, that these were forecast targets. So they were trying to Less shift the balance. Then. Yes. So just making them not binding at all. So just saying we would like for GDP growth to average around 7.5% annual growth, but at the same time, you must reduce air pollution, water pollution, and you have to reduce the carbon intensity of, of economic growth. Are those environmental targets binding or are they also aspirational, meaning if you don't fulfill them, it, it doesn't mean you'll be demoted? Right. Well, at least on paper, they're binding, so they're hard. So for for example, if any leader at the provincial, the city, or the county level doesn't achieve these pollution reduction targets, so what we're talking about is reducing air pollution by 20%, for example, from a certain baseline, um, then it means that they're not eligible for promotion within the next five years. But um, my research has actually shown, so I spent six weeks last summer traveling around to 11 provinces within China, and I interviewed local environmental protection officials, and I asked them this question. So I asked them, "What what does it mean to have a binding target for environmental achievements? And with consistency, every single one of them responded, well, it does. It means that it has to be completed, but that it, if it isn't achieved, then it doesn't necessarily mean that somebody loses their job. Oh. So I found that there is definitely what I've read in all the literature and in studying China's environmental policy implementation for the last five years of my PhD, I found that actually this, is, this implementation gap exists. So where there are the policies on the books and the top-level Chinese government says that these targets are binding, they're still... Um, isn't the same translation at the local levels. And so I think that's a real challenge that the government has to now tackle is how do they structure the incentives? How do they create the carrots and the appropriate sticks, for example, in order to incentivize local leaders or local cadres, for example, to actually implement these policies in good faith? And I think that the environmental data question and the quality and the accuracy of data is a huge part in um, transparency and actually accurately achieving these targets. Well, and that's one question that I, I've certainly heard voiced from those of us who study these kinds of things in America. Sure. Is, mm-hmm. Can we trust the data that's coming out of the government? We know their incentives are not always aligned with environmental protection goals historically. Um, do, you, do you think there's any credence to the claim that yeah. some official data from local levels may not be accurate? Um, are there provisions for yeah. sort of verifying that? Yeah, so this is a really great question, and this is something that people are asking all the time. And I think that it's a very complicated question. So, yes, there are incentives at the very local level where data originates, right? So from companies. What kind of data are we talking like? So we're talking about, yeah, so we're talking about wastewater effluent data, for example. Um, so there are definite I think incentives for strong incentives for corporations to evade the or I guess to to manipulate or to to fake the data because um, they want to avoid fines or penalties for pollution. And so I think that this definitely exists. And this was also confirmed through my conversations with around 40 environmental protection um, officials last summer. So there's definitely recognition, at least at the province level. So when I say province, this is analogous to states in the United States. But again, the the governance regime and the structure is very different, whereas states in, in the United States are, are much more independent. Um, the provinces in China are much more closely tied to the center. So I just wanted to make that kind of clarification. Yeah, it's a very hierarchical system. Yes, yes exactly. And the provinces don't act necessarily very independently. They have to they still wait for directives and orders from the central government in order to determine what policies to enact and what um, what targets to to implement and to pass down to the lower levels. 
So that being said, um, I think that it's this very interesting situation where the main mechanism of Chinese policy implementation is this target system, right? Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. setting these targets, having the local leader sign what we call these responsibility contracts, but then at the same time, that creates these perverse incentives to fake data in order to absolutely demonstrate that they are achieving these targets. And so it's kind of this catch-22 where Chinese leaders are damned if they do and damned if they don't, right? It's sort so, of like in America, we see school systems uh, yes. manipulating student test reports because the carrots and the sticks are so strong. Exactly. And this is a major criticism of the no child left behind policy right, right in America. So yeah. in China, uh, are we seeing manipulation of data or there's just an idea that it might be happening and we should be concerned? Right. So there have been a lot of researchers that have shown, particularly in the economic data, the GDP growth data, that they don't match up between the provincial estimates and then also the national calculations. So uh-huh. what China does is they is they go through every five or 10 years and actually go back using better either energy data or input-output data. They go back and recalculate the GDP statistics. So we absolutely know that this does happen for one reason or the other, whether it's using different methodologies, different um, factors. So this this definitely happens. We know that, that, that that's true. Um, with respect to the environment, I think that it's a little bit more difficult. So um, I, again, I keep pointing back to the air quality example because that's something that I know very well. So China used to have this, this metric called um, blue sky days. So they would have a target for the number of blue sky days that uh, cities and provinces would have to achieve within a year. And a blue sky day obviously is, is, a, is a good metric because you can visualize what a blue sky looks like. And so you can relate and, and create the link between a blue sky day and good air quality. So It's very easy for exactly, most people. Exactly. So that's the reason why they gravitated to adopting this type of target in the first place. And so what this generally means on – so getting more technical on the air, the air pollution index, it means a value on this index of 100 or less. And so we can obviously and that's of add, yeah particulate matter of right a exactly size. Uh, particulate matter or sulfur dioxide so whatever the dominant pollutant is in the air that day and this scale goes from zero to five hundred so you can tell that zero to one hundred is either excellent or good air quality and so um, but then because this is actually a normalization so it's actually a calculated index based on the concentration of just one pollutant so officially the cities have to measure three so that's sulfur dioxide it's um nitrogen oxides and then it's it's this particulate matter um, not the fine pm 2.5 that we were talking about earlier but a coarser measure so pm 10. Um, it's easier to then massage and manipulate the numbers when you have to do a transformation right and so if yeah, you we're don't, talking if, about exactly. smoothing the data to create exactly. a final number that incorporates lots of different measures. Exactly. So if you don't have to publicly release the raw concentration data of the pollutant emissions, then it's easier than when you report the final statistics to do some fudging. Hmm. And so um, in particular, there have been there's there's one researcher um, who has demonstrated that, or he, at least I guess he thinks that there has been a little bit of massaging going along with this particular metric. And so this is why in my own particular research. Research and in, in the in the work that I've done on indicators in China, that we absolutely insist that you have to make the raw data, the concentration data, available. And so China now, I think, is in this phase of, of abandoning this blue sky metric for other indicators that actually are more transparent and that are based on the raw data. So I think that in, in my time and working directly with the Ministry of Environmental Protection in China, that this is something that we've impressed upon them that is absolutely critical. And we're now starting to see this shift away from these 
normalized, these transformed Mm -hmm. and easily manipulated metrics. Um, But in my research and in talking to these officials and then going to see these monitoring stations, I think it's actually quite difficult for them to manipulate the raw data because it's all online. It's all automatic. They use continuous emissions monitoring systems. So about 95% of pollution sources that are monitored in China use this continuous emissions monitoring system. And that's very, very difficult to actually manipulate because it's all online yeah. and all of the equipment has to is, is standard. It's not that Chinese China has their own equipment. It's all, it's all very standard. Well, Angel, this is <laughs> fascinating. Um, thank you so much for joining us. Yes, no problem. It was a pleasure speaking with you.